Welcome to Read By, where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. Well, hi everyone. We at the 92Y Poetry Center started Read By as a response to being unable to run our reading series as we have for 80-some years. And now, as we return to our building in Uptown Manhattan, we're bringing this series to an end, at least in this form. I hope you've found new texts and authors with us over the past year and a half, and uh, I'll be reading for this, our final episode, from John McPhee's Basin and Range. To learn more about my choice, check out the episode description. And now, read by Sophie Heron. Hi, this is Sophie Heron. I'm the Senior Program Coordinator at the 92nd Street Wise Underberg Poetry Center, and I've been producing Red By since March of 2020. Last July, I read John McPhee's Basin Range for the first time and was immediately captured by its structure, its fluid sentences, the breadth and depth of its probity, and its wry and ever-present humor. The titular Basin and Range is an area between Utah and California, but the book is as much about geology itself, both the movement of rock and the movement of mines that have studied it. In 1785, a Scottish geologist, James Hutton, presented to the Royal Society a new theory that land masses were formed over an indescribable amount of time by forces from below, from the ocean and and elsewhere, and that the evidence of these changes were in the different formations of rocks where one era met another. I've chosen to read McPhee's accounting of Hutton's search for this geological evidence, a narrative in which McPhee coins the term deep time, a piece of history writing which, it seems to me, enfolds the transcendent experience of humanity's tiny place in the universe, and concurrently, simultaneously, love for the work of discovery, for of human communication, and of changing minds. It has stayed with me in the moments of excruciating ephemerality and eternity in the past year, sometimes both at once. I hope, as a final episode for Red By, it serves for you also as a microscope that explodes. As things appear from the perspective of the 20th century, James Hutton in those readings became the founder of modern geology. As things appeared to Hutton at the time, he had constructed a theory that to him made eminent sense. He had put himself on the line by agreeing to confide it to the world at large. He had provoked not a few hornets into flight, and now... Like the experimental physicists who would one day go off to check on Einstein by photographing the edges of the solar eclipses, he had best do some additional traveling to see if he was right. As he would express all this in a chapter heading when he ultimately wrote his book, he needed to see his theory confirmed from observations made on purpose to elucidate the subject. He went to Galloway. He went to Banffshire. He went to Saltcote, Skelmorley, Rumbling Bridge. He went to the Isle of Arun the Isle of Man, Inchkeith's Island on the Firth of Forth. His friend John Clark sometimes went with him and made line drawings and watercolors of scenes that arrested Hutton's attention. In 1968, a John Clark, with a name too old for Roman numerals, found a leather portfolio at his Midlothian estate containing 70 of those drawings, 
among them some cross-sections of mountains with granite cores. Since it was Hutton's idea that granite was not a primary rock, but something that had come up into Scotland from below, molten, to intrude itself into the existing schist, there ought to be pieces of schist embedded here and there in the granite. There were. We may now conclude, Hutton wrote later, that without seeing granite actually in a fluid state, we have every demonstration possible of this fact, that is to say, of granite having been forced to flow in a state of fusion among the strata broken by a subterraneous force and distorted in every manner and degree. What called most for demonstration was Hutton's essentially novel and all but incomprehensible sense of time. In 4,004 plus 1,785 years, you would scarcely find the time to make a Ben Nevis, let alone a Gibraltar or the domes of Wales. Hutton had seen Hadrian's Wall running across moor and fen after 1,600 winters in Northumberland. Not a great deal had happened to it. The geologic process was evidently slow. To accommodate his theory, all that was required was time— adequate time, time in quantities no mind had yet conceived. And what Hutton needed now was a statement in rock, a graphic example, a breath-stopping view of deep time. There was a formation of schistus running through southern Scotland in general propinquity to another formation called Old Red Sandstone. The schistus had obviously been pushed around, and the sandstone was essentially flat. If one could see, somewhere, the two formations touching each other with strata awry, one could not help but see that below the disassembling world lies the ruins of a disassembled world, below which lie the ruins of still another world. Having figured out inductively what would one day be called an angular unconformity, Hutton went out to look for one. In a damp country covered with heather, with gorse and bracken, with larches and pines, textbook examples of exposed rock were extremely hard to find. As Hutton would write later, in the prototypical lament of the field geologist, to a naturalist, nothing is indifferent. The humble moss that creeps upon this stone is equally interesting as the lofty pine which so beautifully adorns the valley or the mountain, but to a naturalist who is reading in the face of rocks the annals of a former world, the mossy covering which obstructs his view and renders indistinguishable the different species of stone is no less than a serious subject of regret. Hutton's perseverance, though, was more than equal to the irksome vegetation. Near Jedburgh, in the border country, he found his first very good example of an angular unconformity. He was roaming about the region on a visit to a friend when he came upon a stream cut bank, where the high water had laid bare the flat-laying sandstone, and below it, beds of schistus that were standing straight on end. His friend, John Clerk, later went out and sketched for Hutton this clear conjunction of three worlds. The oldest at the bottom, its remains tilted upward, the intermediate one a flat collection of indurated sand, and the youngest a landscape full of fences and trees, with a phaeton and two on a road above the river cut, driver whipping the steeds, rushing through a moment in the there and then. 
I was soon satisfied with regard to this phenomenon, Hutton wrote later, and rejoiced at my good fortune in stumbling upon an object so interesting to the natural history of the earth, and which I had long been looking for, in vain. What was of interest to the natural history of the earth was that, for all the time they represented, these two unconforming formations, these two levels of history, were neighboring steps on a ladder of uncountable rungs, alive in a world that thought of itself as 6,000 years old, a society which had placed in that number the outer limits of its grasp of time, Hutton had no way of knowing that there were 70 million years just in the line that separated the two kinds of rock, and many millions more in the story of each formation. But he sensed something like it, sensed the awesome truth, and as he stood there staring at the river bank, he was seeing it for all humankind. To confirm what he had observed and to involve further witnesses, he got into a boat the following spring and went along the coast of Berwickshire with John Playfair and young James Hall of Dunglass. Hutton had surmised from the regional geology that they would come to a place among the terminal cliffs of the Lammermuir Hills where the same formations would touched. They touched, as it turned out, in a headland called Sicker Point, where the strata of the lower formation had been upturned to become vertical columns on which rested the old red sandstone, like the top of a weather-beaten table. Hutton, when he eventually described the scene, was both gratified and succinct. A beautiful picture, washed bare by the sea. Playfair was lyrical. On us who saw these phenomena for the first time, the impression made will not easily be forgotten. The palpable evidence presented to us of one of the most extraordinary and important facts in the natural history of the earth gave a reality and substance to those theoretical speculations which, however probable, had never till now been directly authenticated by the testimony of the senses. We often said to ourselves, what clearer evidence could we have had of the different formation of these rocks and of the long interval which separated their formation had we actually seen them emerging from the bosom of the deep? We felt ourselves necessarily carried back to the time when the schistus on which we stood was yet at the bottom of the sea, and when the sandstone before us was only beginning to be deposited in the shape of sand or mud from the waters of a superincumbent ocean. An epoch still more remote presented itself when even the most ancient of these rocks, instead of standing upright in vertical beds, lay in horizontal plains at the bottom of the sea and was not yet disturbed by that immeasurable force which has burst asunder the solid pavement of the globe. Revolutions, still more remote, appeared in the distance of this extraordinary perspective. The mind seemed to grow giddy by looking so far into the abyss of time. Hutton had told the Royal Society that it was his purpose to form some estimate with regard to the time the globe of this earth has existed. But after Jedburgh and Sicker Point, what estimate could there be? The world which we inhabit is composed of the materials not of the earth which was the immediate predecessor of the present, but of the earth which had preceded the land that was above the surface of the sea while our present land was yet beneath the water of the ocean, he wrote. Here are three distinct successive periods of existence, and each of these is, in our measurement of time, a thing of infinite duration. The result, therefore, of this physical inquiry is that we find no vestige of a beginning, no prospect of an end.
Nine Two Wise Read By is produced and commissioned by Nine Two Wise Underberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings and literature for over 80 years. To discover more readings, check out 92y.org slash readby or wherever you download podcasts. Our archive is pretty great. If you'd like to support 92y, please visit 92y.org slash help now. Thank you. And thank you for listening. It's meant a lot to work on this project and to share it with you. And from all of us in the center, wishing you a safe and healthy rest of 2021. Talk to you soon. And take care.